Beer Vana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and in Vancouver at KXRW, or available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I'm Patrick Emerson, Professor of Economics at Oregon State University, and with me, as always, is Jeff Allworth, author of many books, including The Beer Bible. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. It's, uh, it's a rager out there. Yeah, we got a... Uh... We can definitely talk about the weather today because it's a blowing. We, we have an atmospheric river. I have, you, have you seen the satellite image no. of the atmospheric river heading our way? No. They had to stitch together, and this is Noah, they had to stitch together three images, uh, including one from Japan, to get the whole length of this river that's crossing the entire, it's like the width of the entire Pacific Ocean. Wow. It's all aimed at the Pacific Northwest, so and how buckle wide, up, buddy. <laughs> how wide is it? It's remarkably narrow. It's about the width, it looked about the width of Oregon and Washington. Huh, so uh, it's just hitting us. Yeah, it's just like aimed straight at us and forever. So, and I think in a couple of weeks we might be done. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen the forecast. I'm not sure exactly how long it's going to be aimed straight at us. And, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's well, a lot of rain, and it's and it's really windy today too. You know, uh, we have it's weird. We have all this new weather. So we had a very long, hot, dry summer. Uh, but our annual precipitation seems to be at least normal and maybe a little bit higher because when it rains, man, it rains now. Yeah, well, hotter air contains more moisture, so... That's right. More, uh, and also more energy. Yeah, so. and we basically skipped fall. We went from summer to winter, just like that. All yeah. of a sudden it was cold, not just wet, but cold and wet. Well, and by the time people listen to this, it will be post-daylight savings, uh, and... There's something that happens like right around this time of year where like, you know, for a while you're cruising along and it's kind of sunny out in the afternoon and you think, oh, you know, you're still holding the view that it's kind of summery. And then when the weather changes, you all of a sudden notice that it, you feel like it's time for bed and you look at your watch and it's 730. Right. It's like yeah. it's been dark for hours. Yeah. And then you wake up in the morning. And I wake up in the morning earlier and earlier now. We had this conversation. Uh, and it's like dark for so long. <laughs> we had this conversation, exactly this conversation last night uh, at our house. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about heading up to bed. It was like 8.30. And, uh, <laughs> and my wife said, uh, yeah, we'll wait till next week when it's daylight savings. So it's going to be 7.30. You're going to be wanting to go to bed. Yeah. My day started off with a bang. Yes, it did. It was actually, part, like partly weather-wise, actually there was something that you don't know about that happened before. So my elder son, Simon, who longtime podcast listeners might know. Back the, the intern days. The, in, the intern days. Uh, is back at home with his two cats. And so this morning I'm feeding his cats. You have four cats. We have four cats in the house. Uh, this is a discussion for us later. Because <laughs> I wrote some clue on this this morning. Uh, which means you'll probably never be coming to my house. No, ever. No, no. Um, so we have four cats at the moment, and so I'm feeding his cat, and the cat jumps off the table and and uh, lands on the bowl that I'm feeding, spraying cat food everywhere, which freaks out my cat, who jumps and knocks off the whole bin of cat food off the counter, spraying even more cat food everywhere, <laughs> and then power goes out. <laughs> the power is still out at my house, uh, and uh, things got worse from there, but I won't go into it. But... That's nice. So and, and I've the power got, went out with the bang. You want to describe the bang? Uh, yeah, this giant chestnut tree around the corner, two blocks away um, from our house, probably 75 feet uh, tall, uh, um, fell. It, the whole root ball just came out of the, of the earth. 
Um, luckily, it didn't look like anything got crushed, like a parked car, a house. That is amazing because it fell in kind of this it was a corner house and it sort of fell diagonally into that intersection oh wow yeah just remarkable that it looks like nothing no major other damage except the entire power lines uh to our neighborhood yeah well but that's not a big deal no uh and it's not actually that cold so you're not freezing it's not like it's january no and i have this little gas heater that uh, gas fireplace so i can turn that on and keep the house warm so it's okay uh did lose the internet which is, you know, mixed tough, blessing. Tough, yeah, tough these days. Uh, and the and, and everybody therefore switches to cell data, which taxes the cell local cell tower. So it was dribbling out. Sure. But I'm here. I've survived. You, you got you got some texts off, alerted me to the plan, and here we are. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Uh, I'm good. You know, I think it has been. I think since the last time we podcasted, uh, I've been to Norway, maybe. Have, I, have we talked about Norway? Have I been to Norway? Uh, no. The last time we talked about Norway was your first trip to Norway. I don't think we've talked about the second trip to Norway. I went to the Kornor Festival. I'm not sure. I'm probably mispronouncing that. The uh, Oh, yeah. The game the game where you throw a little beanbag into a hole? Uh, no. The that's, Cornhole that's, Festival? That, oh, no. It, it's uh, <laughs> uh, one of those O's with a slashy line through it, oh, yeah. which means beer. So it's ah. the... And corn just means corn but it's also reference to malt so it's the malt beer festival ah. uh, which happens in a tiny tiny little town uh called grodas in hornendal mm-hmm. uh, next to hornendal lake which i learned only when i got there and i was googling around because that's how i roll like i'm flying in I'm like i should see where i'm going <laughs> uh, i learned that the hornendal lake is the deepest lake in europe so that was kind of cool oh well there you go and and we hung out and there were farmhouse brewers so we had uh, beer from the Norwegian farmhouse brewers. There were there was a Lithuanian farmhouse brewer there. There were a couple of Finnish farmhouse brewers. We got to watch a farmhouse brewing demonstration uh, with the big when we talked about before. People remember a big fire pit. This one they do raw ale, which is quite ex- extraordinary. The where they don't boil the wort at all, so ah. they do the mashing and then they pitch the yeast. Boom. Oh wow! Yeah, interesting. It's quite a uh, quite a thing to see. That so, sounds pretty fantastic. It was super cool. Uh, it was a. Uh, uh, it was funny. So, it, we haven't podcasted for a while, but um, uh, it was when when it was still warm in, in Oregon, and so yeah. I left, and it was we had this really late winter, and it was the weather there was like it is here now. So it was in the high forties and pouring rain. They yeah. were having their own atmospheric r- right. river. Yeah. And I came back, and it was still warm, and it was a, a kind of whiplash weather whiplash. I was like, all right, falls here, awesome. I came back, and it was warm. So this is actually good for me. Now we've. Come over to the, the proper weather. Everything has converged yeah. into wet, rainy, gray, and dark. Yeah. And that's another interesting thing. Norway looks and feels a lot like Oregon. I was really surprised. Both both my trips, I had big resonance with Oregon. So yeah. They have a lot in common with Scandinavia, it turns out. And the one thing I remember probably from your social media posts or something is that uh, you were just a couple what, valleys over from where you were before. It was a little bit further than that, but on the, as, as the crow flies, I think it was like 50 miles or something, 60 miles. And you said something about how remarkably different the traditions were in those two little places. Yeah. Yeah. And it's partly because, so this is the area where there are the fjords. And uh, in Western Norway, there's a lot of these deep valleys that are connected to the sea. Mm-hmm. Well, because the valleys are so deep, the way that the people who live in the fjords get around and get to the next fjord over, the next few fjords over, it's way, way easier to get in a boat and right. go all the way out to sea and go way back up, back up the fjord. Yeah. Um, then going over, 
Well, the place I was at in May was called Voss, mm -hmm. and this place is Hornendal. Uh, both of them are not fjords. They're deep lake valleys. Mm -hmm. So there ain't no way to get up over the, you know, you got to go up over. You can't go out. So and there wasn't a lot of commingling. Uh, yeah, so it concentrates culture. Yeah. So that's why you have entirely different uh, brewing traditions right there. And uh, I know I'm going on too, probably too long. For no, but it's fascinating because uh, I'm always fascinated by physical geography and how it affects both culture, economies, everything—it's amazing. Totally. There's a third region, which is re region, which is also super cool, uh, called Stierdal, where they do smoke dales. So uh, they have these. They still smoke their the farmhouse brewers still make their own malt in these fire in the in these kind of they're called soin houses or something. I, the the word I can't I don't <laughs> I've heard people pronounce it I can't really pronounce it and it doesn't look at all like it's spelled right. Um, but anyway, they, they spend like 24 hours roasting their malt slowly, and then they make uh, they make beer out of that. That so, sounds like Norway trip number three for you. I know. That's why <laughs> when I was leaving, I'm like, well, i got to collect all three. got to come back to steer it all. All right. We have a big interview coming, so uh, we should probably get on to the topic of today's pod. So a few weeks back, Jeff's editor at Craft Beer and Brewing wrote to explain that the magazine was shifting to its original quarterly format. The reason wasn't declining revenues, but efficiencies. It's less expensive and simpler to put out four issues a year than six. That got us thinking, how do magazines work? How has craft beer and brewing survived when so many other magazines folded? How do the internet, social media, and newer delivery systems like podcasting impact print media? In today's show, we'll have Jamie Bogner. Good call. <laughs> I had to pause it because you told me. Craft beer and brewing's publisher on to give us the lowdown. All that soon, but first, the news. Our first item mystifies me, and I'm hoping you can tell me what it means, Patrick. Uh-oh. <laughs> All right. And you actually alerted me to this, this item, so uh, it's coming back to you. But here we go. Companies are reporting their third quarter earnings, and Anheuser-Busch announced volumes were up 3.7%, and more than that, revenues were up. Mm -hmm. They've raised prices to account for increased costs, and they've also lured buyers to more expensive beers. Brewers Association economist Bart Watson told Marketplace... The individual price of a brand is often less important than how the relative price of that brand changes compared to brands around it. So, uh, what's what's going on here? Like, uh, we keep we keep hearing about you know all, all the the impacts from inflation and it's putting a pinch on everybody. But but companies are getting making more money. What, what what's going on? Yeah. Uh, well, that's very interesting. So the uh, what. It fascinated me about this piece was that I wasn't surprised that revenues were increasing because you raise prices, revenues will go up as long as volume doesn't fall too much, right. more than the percentage increase in price, right? But in this case, what I was surprised at was both volumes and uh, revenues are up, and I surmise that this is uh, a function of the fact that we're talking about uh, Anheuser-Busch, InBev, um, and their... Uh, beer's price point relatively, and I think that's what Bart yeah. Watson's talking about. So in other words, uh, beer, beer prices are going up all over the place. It's starting to become even more challenging to afford, like, say, premium craft beer. Let's call it that for lack of a better term. And so you might start switching down to more macro brew. 
And so I think that's probably a big part of it. So yes, they're able to pass on the price increases, but as Bart Watson mentions, those price increases aren't as uh, hefty as what craft brewers have to pass on. And so they're able to stay relatively competitive, maybe even more competitive. I haven't looked at relative prices recently, but it sounds like Bart Watson has. And so people, people are consuming more Anheuser-Busch, in other words, more Bud and less, you know, pick your Sierra Nevada or whatever um, uh, because of that. Uh, another little offshoot of the same marketplace story, but they didn't really explain it, is how these uh, macro brewers are trying to push people into their, their slightly more premium labels. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that's another way to try to pick off some of the craft brew uh, drinkers who don't want to go to Bud, but might go to, I don't even know what they are. <laughs> right. Bud Special. <laughs> or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, it's all fascinating. And, and it's uh, reading that article reminded me that um, if you're in the beer business, you, there's these weird categories that if you're not in the beer business, you don't really follow. Yeah. So Premium Plus is craft beer. It's called Premium Plus. Right. Premium is the Budweiser. more expense oh Budweiser yeah yeah it's like the good but that's like the pre that's that's the really good stuff and then uh, below premium is like, like the yeah, natty light and stuff yeah <laughs> and there might even be one below that like economy Hams, premium yeah. oh, or something yeah. so there's all these gradations that from a from a craft beer perspective we're looking at it and we're thinking there ain't no difference between yeah. natty light and Budweiser but so this is interesting look. because we've talked actually in previous beeronomics podcasts about sort of uh, behavioral economics and price heuristics and how people make decisions. And, you know, uh, when a six-pack of Bud is eight bucks and a six-pack of your favorite craft IPA is ten bucks, that's one thing. But now when, I don't even know what they are, but the last time I bought a 12-pack of IPA, a uh, six-pack of IPA, excuse me, it was more like 12 bucks. Yeah. And, you know, Bud's probably nine bucks now. And you're thinking, okay, so now it's starting to really... That, that decision's getting harder and that relative difference feels different. Um, even when it's a percentage difference, it's interesting because, you know, if you're 16 versus 14, that's $2 difference, but it's lo lower percentage than 8 to 10, right? Right. Uh, but 16 bucks just feels like a lot, and so you might be more inclined to switch to 14 there. And so I, I fear that that's going on and that might start to um, bite uh, when it comes to craft beer. But... From what I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, craft beer is still uh, doing reasonably well passing on these cost increases. I think that's right. Um, our next item is going to get at that. It's a different data point coming from a different angle, and it's interesting to me. And I think when you're looking at, at beer stuff, you kind of have to look at different uh, places where the, the information is coming from because there, there are really different ways to slice it. Uh, and one of them is that the beer category, we call the beer category, includes all the stuff that's not beer, and it really throws things right. off. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, well, why don't I read this next yeah, one? Yeah, so read the next one. Discuss more. So things may be great for AB InBev, but the rest of the industry seems to be in retreat. Aha. Uh -huh. As one data point, the National Beer Wholesalers Association puts out monthly trend uh, trend reports for where different segments are headed. They're based on expect, expected beer demand, which translates to orders for distributors. It's a handy way of seeing if demand is increasing or de decreasing. The organization assigns a number from 1 to 100, where anything below 50 is decreasing demand or contracting, and any, anything above 50 is increasing demand or expanding. Since the early summer, every segment except imports have been below 50. Craft have been especially bad, with readings of 32, 33, 28, 26, and 23 in the most recent October report. Sorry, I 
transpose 33 and 32, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, low. <laughs> and going down. And going down, sorry. Yeah. So 33, 32, 28, 26, and 23. Uh, yeah. And that's really low. Like, normally these yeah. things are between 35 and 65. And right. if you see something that's above 65, it's like lightning hot. And if it's below 35, it's bad. So, so the projection is some pretty severe contraction coming up. I guess so. Uh, I guess so. And, and one thing is some, sometimes these will bounce around. Um, yeah. And you expect a lot of noise because it is a predictive thing where they think the market's yeah. going to head. Uh, but it's been so consistent. The trend has been so consistent. Yeah. That it just seems pretty bad. I've had this question for all of my life, and I still don't know if we have a really perfect answer for it. But I've always wondered whether craft beer is a luxury good in the sense that when inflation is arising everywhere, so your real incomes are essentially going down, yeah. your, your, the purchasing power is going down, yeah. is that one of the things you start shedding uh, and um, economizing on? Yeah. Or, or do people consider it a necessity? Like, there's no way I would drink a Bud. I'm going to keep drinking my Sierra Nevada or whatever. Yeah, I don't know that there's good data on that. And no, I, don't I don't know the answer either. I don't think so. so. We don't think we have a really good, good, good sense of that. But this is one of those times when I really think that um, it could be tough for uh, craft brewers, especially with all of their... I mean, they have worse cost constraints than macro brewers because they're not as big a buyer. Um, they don't have their own in-house barley fields and things like that. So, right. uh, so, there, yeah. so this is, and, and when you look at different uh, data sources, you also have to think about how they play out. So this is the wholesalers uh, thing. And um, uh, one thing that I saw in the news that went by uh, was that uh, sales out of tap rooms were, are now higher at this point in 2022 than they were at some similar point in 2019. Mm. So... Taproom sales are have rebounded post-COVID back yeah. to their normal and are up, yeah. uh, which is an entirely different category of sales than the stuff that's going through wholesalers. Right. So maybe that's one reason they're, uh, you know, one way that they're recouping some of their losses. Yeah, and that's good because that's direct to consumer and a lot bigger margins on that and cheaper for consumers typically. But Right. Uh, well, should we get to the interview? I'll let you introduce this. Sure. Uh, I interviewed uh, Jamie on my own this morning, just this very morning, actually. Excellent. Uh, and uh, we had a great talk. It's a it's just to set it up. I mentioned this a little bit when we when we go, but uh, it's a magazine I've been written, writing for for a few years now. I wrote the style uh, beer style column, and then last year I was sort of a free agent, did random stuff, and I'm going to be back on doing beer styles. Uh, but that's what I do. But um, it's a, it's a, it's a Good magazine. They pay well. Uh, it's a nice place to write. And when when I heard that they were going to go to uh, this quarterly, I pinged Jamie. I'm like, what's going on? And he started telling me interesting stuff. And I thought, you know, I have been a writer for 25 years. I have no idea how magazines and newspapers work. So yeah. why don't we get Jamie on the horn and have him tell us? With me is uh, Jamie Bogner. Is that, am I pronouncing your last name right, Bogner? We, we pronounce it Bogner. But okay. uh, there are others with the same uh, last name who pronounce it Bogner. For us, oh. it's, it's a long O. Well, I'm with the uh, uh, Jamie Bogner of the Fort Collins Bogners, uh, who, and he is the founder, the co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, uh, whom I write for. So I guess in a way, you're kind of my boss. Um, but it's great to have you on the podcast. We would, I'd like to we'll consider it a creative collaborator. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and maybe patron of sorts uh, in some some strange way. Uh, <laughs> boss just nah, you know yeah um, i think that's right yeah. we do we definitely uh writers definitely have a different relationship with uh the people they write for than than um 
Yeah, I would be. Like the poor people who work for Elon Musk at Twitter right now, they're having a different relationship than you and I will ever have. Today, right. I mean, these seem to be a lot of ex boss for what half of the company. So, <laughs> right. um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no, we, we in this in this world of media that we're in, we enjoy working in this kind of freelance capacity with lots of of creative contributors across the spectrum, and it is truly one of the fun things about it to get to um, embrace everyone's unique perspective, experience, and bring all of that into this. You know, kind of you know, round it all up and help shape it into this kind of media thing that we do. Um, finding people that have you know specific skills, specific backgrounds, and specific interests you know, who can contribute in certain ways to, you know, make something together. And so it's definitely not a employment boss kind of do what I tell you thing. It is much a, Hey, what do you think? What are, where, where are your ideas and how can we kind of wrap all of this together into uh, something and help, you know, work together. Honestly, you know, as you know, uh, working with Joe and with me, we certainly have our own ideas and we try to push each other and, uh, you know, make all of these ideas better by working together. Um, and it's definitely not a top-down management style in that sense. That's so, right. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I do want to loop back around and touch on that in a minute. We're going to talk about the editorial side. Uh, you, you know, you have a magazine, uh, but you also have other components. Uh, and we're going to talk about all of that. But but first, I want to talk about you. You you are yourself a podcaster. And I think a lot of people who listen to the uh, Craft Beer and Brewing podcast are familiar with your voice. But we don't hear you talk about yourself much. You're the guy who asks the questions. So now we're turning the tables and I want to know a little bit about your background. I actually don't know anything about your background, uh, except that I saw that on LinkedIn that um, you are a uh, religious studies major in college, which uh, I also was. So we have that in common. But beyond that, I know nothing. How did, tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, sure. Going back to college, I was a religious studies major. I intended to become a Presbyterian minister ah. when I went to college. And, uh, you know, because I grew up in the Presbyterian church, studied. And, uh, you know, by by junior year, I was editor, co-editor of the, the college newspaper, caught the media bug, uh, had dabbled in design, had taken a cross-enrolled that, of course, I went to Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and cross-enrolled at a uh, in a graphic design course, the Memphis College of Art kind of pursued that. I'd, I'd, I'd done an AP art portfolio uh, in high school and had always been involved in the kind of you know creative art side, um, kind of pursued both of those things, writing and design. Um, and, uh, you know, again, was editor of the college newspaper that ended my early my senior year. And then I was bored because I was used to not having any time on my hands. And so I decided to engage. That was my first foray into self-publishing. I started the Scottastrophe Ska magazine in 1995, my senior year of high school or senior year of college. And, uh, and that was it. I, I, I did that till about 98 when Ska music uh, was no longer a viable business opportunity. <laughs> um, couldn't find anybody to advertise anymore. And I uh, had to, you know, read the writing on the wall there. Worked worked in some, you know, digital stuff. Built, spun up a website for a local uh, alternative record store, Park Ave CD is a phenomenal place. Worked for the Orlando Sentinel newspaper, just doing some digital contracting stuff. Worked for the Orlando Weekly newspaper there, doing graphic design. Uh, ultimately launched another magazine with another partner called MCO lasted for about a year, six issues, free weekly or free monthly culture, lifestyle and entertainment magazine. Um, after that died, I was actually the in-house art director for the Orlando rage XFL football team for the one season of, uh, 2000, you know, 2000 to 2001, uh, the one season of the XFL then, 
Um, moved to New York City, started working for magazines up there. My wife's an actor director. She wanted to move to New York City. I thought, you know, it's not a terrible place for me to be. So went to work as an associate art director for NBA Inside Stuff and Hoop magazines, uh, professional sports publications, worked on other stuff. Uh, they, they did a bunch of magazines with custom publishing, MLS, uh, you know, game programs, you, you, all sorts of things. Um, old, then 2005 became uh, art director for American Artist Magazine, Family of Magazines, Fine Art, uh, Figurative Art Magazines, and they did drawing. So anyway, started working for them. Um, they were bought by a company called Interweave, which is based out here in Loveland, Colorado. Uh, I ultimately, they put me in charge of their jewelry magazine, art direction of the jewelry magazines. I became an editorial director. And then ultimately from editorial director, became vice president of content, overseeing all of the, the content side of the Interweave business. Uh, it's, you know, it was about a $35 million business with 17 magazines, you know, across that spectrum. Um, and then from there became group publisher. For interweave overseeing you know running that entire pnl and you know uh, reporting directly to the president on that it was from that context where i met my partner john bolton um and then after about a year of me in that position uh, uh anyway there was a acquisition didn't go that that great uh he put together a business he left the business put, put together a business plan for this business kept dogging me to join him and hey we should go do this together and uh, i eventually said yes and uh, here we are. <laughs> okay, that is well, a long history of uh, of my my publishing experience, but yeah, twenty five twenty five years, and I've been involved in print media in some form or fashion for the the entirety of that career. Yeah, my second question was going to be, how does one get into publishing? And I guess the way you get into it is you do it your whole life until you finally launch your own magazine. <laughs> it, <laughs> it's it. a well, you know, and I've launched I've launched number a number of magazines and mostly unsuccessfully in the past and so that's the other thing fail <laughs> do it <laughs> fail learn from it go to work for other people take the you know learn gain from that experience push that back into find the right business partner to go into business with um that is the single most important takeaway from all of this um the right business partner is better than a good business idea um, because you can always pivot but finding the right person to go into business with uh that you share temperament with and that you can you know work creatively with in a give and take um the single most important thing around this but you're right people ask like how do you become editor of beer magazine that's so cool everybody sends you beer like yeah it just kind of takes a a long, long time to get to a position where you are capable of launching this kind of business, doing it, funding it the right way, being able to sustain the business through uh, a lot of lean years as every business getting off the ground goes through those kinds of challenges. You know, it's not easy whether you're launching a brewery or whether you're launching a media business, you know, it is always challenging in those first five, six years. And then you either turn the corner or you don't, um, right. you know, and there are certainly moments through this business where we were you know, <laughs> you're looking at all the options and wondering, hey, is this really going to work? And then, you know, over time, it like it worked. So and here we are. Here you are. So one thing I expected uh, to hear in your, your background was something about beer, which is not on my list of questions. But I feel like we need to talk about that because anyone who listens to the podcast knows that you have a really intimate knowledge uh, of the brewing process. So, you know, at some point you, you learned all about brewing and it wasn't working in a brew house. So how did you figure all that stuff out? 
No, I've been, you know, I've been a beer fan, craft beer fan, um, you know, back when I got into drinking that in 1995, when I turned 21, I, you know, I was a college radio DJ, even in high school, DJed on WPRK, the Rollins College Radio Station, a phenomenal college radio station, um, spent a lot of time behind microphones, playing music and doing that kind of thing, which strangely has now come back to, to me now, um, you know, in this kind of scope, podcasting is a little bit different than that, but it is a similar kind of audio skill set and being able to carry that through. But, you know, I mean, I was a, I was DJing college radio before punk broke in the nineties, you know, with indie rock and ska and reggae, you know, punk hardcore and all of that stuff. You know, I was never going to be a macro beer drinker. That was just not, it was not going to be my destiny. Like, uh, you know, I needed to, to feel that like smug superiority over all the other people that just liked boring, normal things. You know, and that was, that was always my mindset. So, you know, as soon as I was able to go buy beer for myself, you know, I was I was exploring craft beer because it was different, because it was interesting and because, uh, you know, just fed that part of my own aesthetic interest. And so um, over the years, I've watched, you know, I started visiting breweries back then in the 90s and would always make a point of doing that even through the 2000s on business trips. You know, we know my partner, John and I now, uh, even then we were working for another business, would just go find the local breweries or the local beer bars and, you know, go explore. Um, did very, very small amounts of homebrewing, but really it was more like helping out friends as they homebrewed here and there. It wasn't wasn't a significant thing, but it was just an interest. And when, you know, when we then conceived of this business, we were, you know, we had this long experience now in how-to media. You know, I had been working when we launched this business in how-to media for, you know, for eight years now, or eight years at that point. Now it's, you know, 20 years, um, crazy, uh, just, or almost 20 years, which is a lot of time now, you know, in this kind of how-to media field. And we just were looking for an opportunity to then take what we understood about building how-to media and applying that to subject matter that we were both personally interested in and excited about and then also saw opportunity in and so that was the connection there but i'll tell you once you know as we got this started it was a it was a lot of crash course in uh, understanding the brewing process and uh, you know i am still a work in progress as i learned from everybody that i talked to you know i think the only thing that I have going for me is I'm pretty good at remembering things. And so when people tell me things, I, I file it away and I can go back to that. And I do have a, you know, I can kind of piece all of that together mentally and understand that broader process, even if I'm not actively participating in it or, or brewing myself, um, you know, but I do have that kind of, you know, mind that just can visualize how all these things work together and these kinds of, you know, impacts of all of those things. So, um, and I, you know, I make personal choices to make sure that I don't negatively affect my memory, <laughs> <laughs> which is why uh, I drink a lot of beer and don't do a lot of other things. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Beer is a great memory that we all know that let's, let's, let's shift to the magazine then. Um, I'm curious. So 2014, the magazine was founded, uh, beer publication. Jeff, before we go on that, I, we should call it a media company. Okay. Uh, I mean, mag magazine is just one component of it. We view ourselves as a media company, you know, and we take a kind of platform neutral approach to that. We want to deliver great content to, you know, to people wherever they are. Print is part of that. Magazine is certainly part of that. Um, you know, but our events, our podcast, our digital channels, our email newsletter, all of these pieces, um, you know, they're equally important and uh, they, they get equal uh, focus from us. Video, video class is another thing we do. Um, and so we absolutely view this as this like broader approach just to media as a media company. 
Well, I think that's a good reset because I was going to ask by 2014, um, you know, we're, we're pretty far into the internet era. Print is already dying. Print has been dying for 15 years, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, and there's already, the, the beer space is already pretty crowded with, uh, with outlets. So how did you settle on beer and what, you know, there's beer is a, this enormous topic. So how did you find the kind of approach that led to the company, you know, which is for those of a, so for those folks who haven't read it, um, the magazine is really, uh, uh, you know, kind of brewer focused. You're going to find a lot of stuff about the brewing process and beer styles and beer history, and it's very it's very focused on kind of uh, uh, the 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 practitioner view. So, how did you how did 2014 comes along? How did you come to all of that? What did you as you guys were spitballing? What did you come up with? You know, we we looked at it again coming out of the handcraft market, and these the magazines that Interweave was publishing were you know everything from yarn knitting, weaving, yarn spinning, jewelry making, quilting, sewing. You know, very much hands on how to media. In that market, that craft market was about a six billion dollar market in the United States at the time. Craft beer was about a fourteen billion dollar market at the time. That craft segment had about 50 magazine and media titles in it. And the world of craft beer, when we got into it, it had six. And so, wow. you know, I think you think that it's dense and that it's overpopulated. But the reality is that, you know, from a media business perspective, it absolutely wasn't. And, you know, we looked at it and thought, we've got this experience there were a lot of folks that were in beer media at the time um, who were passion driven because they loved beer and they loved the subject, um, but they maybe didn't have the kind of broader context of how to build a successful company to support that media. And we thought that we could do that. We thought that we could, uh, you know, and, you know, come in, understood some fundamentals about how to actually run a media business in a way that could be profitable and sustainable and support this enterprise, um, you know, in a, you know, not, not to take anything away from people that build businesses based on passion alone. But I think as all of us have seen it, it can be harder to make a business truly successful if you also don't have some of that experience in that business sector in general already. And so we thought, you know, there's some opportunity for us to take the discipline that we had built from, uh, you know, operating and running in media for as long as we had and apply that in this space. And the other piece that we saw is that, uh, you know, a lot of beer media was siloed. Mm. There was brewing media, there was professional brewing media, there was home brewing media, and there was consumer beer media. Um, and we just decided from the start not to silo out like that. We just wanted to be a magazine about brewing. And we have homebrew scale mag you know, recipes in the magazine, but we never call it a homebrew magazine, you know, it's just a magazine for brewers. Our content is, is content for brewers. And what we found, um, and we also decided that while, you know, there was a lot of beer media that focused on, you know, how to win a homebrew competition or how to, you know, create this device to, you know, um, make the thing, you know, yourself, um, that we were instead going to take the approach of talking to professional brewers about how they brew in a way that could be applicable to anyone who brews. And it wasn't something that was being done as much at that point, but we saw this kind of growth and explosion. We saw this kind of creative locus, you know, this locus and brewing of creativity had long sat in the world of homebrew. You know, homebrewers were the ones pushing, pushing the envelope, driving things and, you know, moving the conversation forward. 
Um, you know, but by the early 20 teens, you know, the professional brewers and the commercial side of brewing had, had started taking on a big chunk of that and, and at least, you know, at least equal, you know, to that homebrewing world. And I think you could argue now that, uh, you know, it is as much or more driven now by that commercial side versus the homebrew side in terms of driving creativity. And so we saw an opportunity to, to, to channel that, you know, to talk to influential professional brewers about how they do, how they do what they do in a way that could then feed back into this broader world of, of brewing as a whole. And again, by not like, you know, drawing the lines too tightly by just embracing all of it as brewing. Um, you know, we thought there was a, a kind of cool opportunity there and, and sure. And you can see that in everything we do now, whether it's the podcast, you know, there are home brewers that listen, there are lots of pro brewers that listen, um, and magazines are, the, uh, you know, the same exact way, all, all of that content kind of works in, in both of those directions. And so, um, you know, it's been fun to see how by not trying to define things too tightly, we've been able to you know, just find an audience that is passionate about, um, you know, brewing and likes the perspective that we bring to it, who we talk to and how we kind of shape that conversation and bring it together. In terms of the magazine itself, you have to make decisions about what you're going to print, right? This is one thing that um, I think people who don't uh, follow media very closely don't realize that, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a million things you can print, but, uh, you know, you have a million choices, but you get to publish 10 things, right? So, so you actually have to have uh, a sense of what you want to publish. Uh, and in terms of magazines, you have departments, you know, you have recurring columns, how does when you're starting a magazine? I, I, I'm sure I'm I'm assuming this evolves over time. But when you first started out, how do you figure out how to do all that stuff? Like, do you do you block it out? And and you know, do you do you have writers in mind beforehand that you think, oh, well, we could work with this writer, and so maybe that like, how does that whole process work? You know, the the first step, I, I've, I'm sure I've got photos on my phone of the whiteboard sessions from the, the you know, that right as our, our startup, because I mean, we, we kicked around lots and lots of ideas around that we kicked around lots of brand ideas, lots of naming ideas. Uh, we kicked around all these kinds of content ideas and what, you know, how and what we were going to do around that. Um, you know, but then there's also just the like sheer panic of starting a new business and uh, all this possibility that just becomes massively overwhelming, but also a time crunch to get to a point where you have a product that you can actually sell so that you are driving some revenue, you know, like it's, it's, everyone's got that issue, right? You know, you, you're spending money. If you don't have something bringing money in, then it's all just going out. And for any kind of startup business, that's always a, a, a you know, dangerous panic kind of scenario. And so, you know, there's always that mix of just like, um, uh, you know, just, just crushing weight uh, of, of deadline of trying to get something together. Um, but no, funny enough, like a lot of it became just leveraging friendships and connections. Like right before we had launched the magazine, uh, I had gone to the Toasters, a ska band here in Fort Collins. We played a show at the old, at the Aggie Theater, popped in, talked to Rob, the lead singer. And uh, I had designed CDs for Moon, his old record label back in the 90s uh, when I was doing the ska zine stuff. You know, so he's like, well, have you ever met, you met Arlo from Ska Brewing? Like you should, you know, so he, Rob sent an email and connected us. And that was, that was the reason that uh -huh. reconnected me to Dave Thibodeau, who I had actually talked to from Ska Brewing in the, like 1995 as they were launching that brewery. And that's the reason there's a recipe, you know, for, uh, uh, you know, Ska's IPA in that very first issue. On the same token, like um, I hid in uh, an old friend of mine, Tom Mayer, 
from uh, 1990s ska world used to write for my ska zine. Well, about 2003, Tom, who went to J school at Mizzou, uh, along with uh, this other guy you may know, Joe Stang. Um, Heard of him. Tom, yeah, right. Tom, uh, you know, Tom pulls Joe and me together. He's like, we should do a blog, a soccer blog. So, you know, so we did this blog called We Call It Soccer uh, in 2003. And really, Joe did most of the work, and Tom and I just kind of like hung on. Uh, and it didn't last for very long, but I had made that connection. And then, of course, later on, Joe became a contributing editor to Draft. And so when we started doing this, I reached out to Joe. I was like, hey, you know, uh, we're going to do this. Can you help me? And he even helped back then, put me in touch with Stan Hieronymus. That's why Stan's in that very first issue. You know, you just work out from the people you know to meet the people that you don't know and make those kinds of connections. And strangely enough, you know, being a part of this broader world of writing, journalism, everything for, for that kind of time, it just, you know, it was just interesting how you could lean on some of those connections and start building something. Uh, and of course, we had a track record in previous businesses. People could see the real things that we had done before um and i think that helps make people feel like it's real and that they're not just doing uh stuff you know that might not ever see the light of day right <laughs> yeah which you had some experience with that as, sure. as we all have as a writer i've done a lot of projects that didn't uh succeed so um, no and, and and from the start you know as, as you know and and every writer like we committed ourselves to paying all of our writers on time paying everybody well paying everybody on time we have stuck to that dogmatically you know for the, the past nine years now and uh it it's strange that that would have to be a point of contrast with general media over the last nine years 10 years um but even then when we started in 2014 2015 i mean there were a lot of writers that were having a hard time getting paid by the the, the companies they were writing for um, but we've always adopted this the standpoint that um creators get paid first you know our writers get paid before our printer gets paid you know and uh you know because you, you just can't you can't take can't take advantage of the the core people providing the content you know, that, that we are pulling together and putting out there. So, um, you know, there, there've been a few fundamental things like that, that we've, we've been really proud of ourselves on of doing, making sure that we're doing this well in the right way. Right. So I, I'm not sure whether to ask, ask this question now or later, but I'm going to ask it now and you can, we, we may revisit it. But, um, one thing I've always been curious about as a writer, I've never worked on the editorial side and, uh, but I, but I also have a blog and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I have, I have sponsors for the blog. So I'm a little bit aware of the, the business side. And I know that when you're dealing with advertisers, uh, you're, you, they, the advertisers have a certain opinion about what kind of content you should have. And it may or may not be the same as what your readers want. Although even figuring out what your readers want is not always so obvious. How do you, as a magazine, how does any magazine balance those two needs and are they harmonious? Do they compete? And how do you like work with that tension? Sure. I think the first thing I would say about that is that um, from the very outset, we made, sh we, we wanted to build a business um, that created media that people would be willing to pay for. There's a lot of media out there that is solely underwritten by advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and for us, that's never been a sustainable strategy for media, especially not something smaller niche like what we're in here. Uh, maybe that works if you're talking about like men, women's fashion, men's fashion, GQ, or, 
you know, even like, you know, large scale kind of political, whatever media, you know, yeah, you can find a big enough for tech media, you know, you can find a big enough audience to underwrite it all through advertising in that kind of way. Fine. Um, but in smaller niche, you know, kind of subjects like this, it's incredibly important to make media that's so valuable to people that they're willing to pay for it and subscribe to it. And so that has been our, our, you know, our focus from the outset uh, and all of our, like it, influences like that's our editorial lens all of the content that we are going to produce has to be so valuable that people are willing to pay in order to read consume you know and and uh, and, and see it and so you know even to this day subscriptions are a larger revenue source for us than advertising oh, um that's, that's, and that's unusual is that right somewhat unusual you know um but we when we try to balance that where you know obviously you've got subscriptions you've got advertising you've also got like events and you know event revenue ticket sales you know there's a we have a number of different things that generate revenue from the business in these different kinds of ways and places again to stay diversified so that we're not just reliant on one thing if we're only reliant on advertising then yeah it'd be a very different picture where we might have to make different choices but we don't because our readers and our subscribers are our primary source of revenue. And so we can just stay focused on them. And because we, you know, we always look at it from if we can maintain that trust where our readers care so deeply about what we do, if we can maintain that trust, then advertisers will come along, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that will follow. Um, and we just always approach it from that kind of direction, build that trust. And then, you know, that becomes something that because we have that trust from readers, because we work so hard to make sure that we're delivering the right kind of content that they want to read, that's that's finely tuned to their interests um, and something that they're so engaged in that they're willing to pay for it, like that's valuable to advertisers. And so, you know, then the other piece of it is we try to have enough advertisers to where we don't have to appease any single one where, you know, like we can't favor anyone. Uh, you know, people see right through that kind of stuff, you know, it's just gross. Like, so we just don't mess with it. And then we've built a lot of systems in order, you know, specific systems, you know, even things with like blind review process where we can't favor advertisers because it's an entirely blind process for reviews, um, which we're just, you can be hands off about. Um, and so, you know, and then when things do come up where I see there's some sort of potential conflict of interest, you know, I, I just recuse myself from that. For example, uh, you know, Kate Bernat pitched a, a a story on art history, a breakout brewer story for this next issue. And I had met the Rouse, you know, back when they came to one of our brewery accelerator events years ago, they won the pitch slam. You know, I, I just had, I had all of this relationship in history. And it's like, I don't want it to feel self-promotional for us to just, push this story out there and so i'm like you know this is up to you and joe you know you all decide if this is the right the right story i'm going to step out of that decision because you know again i don't want to be seen as showing favoritism around some of these kinds of things so you know that's that's just the approach that we take and i think that you know in in the long run it's it's paid off Uh, i think you know what we now it's a strange thing but by not trying to directly support certain advertisers goals everyone's advertising is actually more impactful yeah makes a lot of sense um i i found the same thing honestly on my blog uh the the value that the blog has is the the you know the what i write and people are either going to want to sponsor that or they're not and if i compromise on that my readers are going to know in this you know in a heartbeat and that's not good for anybody who wants to sponsor the blog 
So I totally get that. Let's trust, trust. Trust really is the piece here. You know, like it is the value in media that yeah. this is the thing. It's the thing that we can bring to this to add value, you know, and anything you do to violate that trust is something that ultimately just, uh, you know, negatively impacts the, the value of the media brand that you're building. Let's, let's shift to the, the business side of this since we're already kind of talking about that. Uh, you, you, you talked about it being a media company and I think that's a valuable place to go to next because what we saw with print media, uh, legacy print media was focused on this model that had worked for a hundred years uh, and then the internet came along and it didn't work anymore. And it took most of them a long time to figure out these other supportive revenue streams that would come in and support a print publication. You kind of did it the opposite way. You weren't a legacy publisher. You, you, you were able to think about it in toto to start with. So why don't you talk a little bit about the different components of the business and how, when you were bringing them all together, you, you, you visualize them supporting each other and like, which ones did you think uh, we got to have this because it will, it will support the editorial side versus we got to have this because it's a great revenue source. You know, you have to, you have to balance all these things. So talk about all those different components and what you were trying to achieve with them. Sure. Sure. You know, so again, the, the fundamental, like the foundational kind of brand promise that we create is, you know, craft beer and brewing is for those that make and drink great beer. And so we wanted to kind of serve both of those sides. Um, but every piece of it has to help people get better at what they love to do. Um, honestly, because that again is what people are willing to pay for media for, you know, um, what we re what we saw very early on and knew intimately at that point is that those media outlets that were focused on what beer to drink next, you know, that kind of consumer suggestion type media, that's just, you know, especially in the, the that day and age, and, and we'll see it even more now in the world of social media and the world of, you know, free influencers pushing those things you know of what beer to drink next of facebook groups and beer traders all talking about you know that next hyped thing um that was just that wasn't that's not content that people are willing to pay for you know and so you know we you know we wanted to approach this like you, we've got to add some value that other people can't add to this equation and part of that is finding the best experts in this field that can talk about you know how to do things um and then the next piece of it is fine, you know, getting that content to people, um, to readers and subscribers in every single channel that they want to consume it in. And so, you know, from the outset, digital, you know, email has always been a huge piece of our, our program. It was at the last business we were in and it is now um, video was a huge piece uh, you know, of the, the component, the content uh, uh, mix again, where we came from. And we knew that that was going to be a big thing. And we started our video program back in, in 2015 and now have a video library of over 80 classes, uh, you know, of, of varying bring subjects that are available as part of our all access subscription to any, you know, anyone for, a, you know, and it's, there's, it's, there's a premium price to access that kind of content. Um, but a lot of people enjoy learning that way. And we wanted to produce content in that Um it's it's kind of cool that we've been able to build that library. There's just nothing like it that exists in the world of brewing now other than that. So that was a cool piece. We knew that was going to be a bit of it. And we also knew that events were, were going to be uh, you know a big piece of this too. And we played with a bunch of different uh, event styles and formats. We do everything from a 
large consumer beer festival in Minneapolis, the Minnesota Craft Beer Festival, which you know is forty five hundred to six thousand people in the in the convention center, but a very beer centric and focused, um, you know, big welcoming broad kind of beer festival at a lower price point so that it's accessible to all sorts of people um and we go from that spectrum you know where you can buy a 55 dollar ticket for all you can drink at a beer festival up to these brewers retreat events which are you know basically fantasy homebrew camp you know homebrew with uh some you know legends and brewing and that kind of scenario which at a, a very different very much higher price point um you know that that befits that kind of experience because you know we want to have those so we have you know we always knew we want to play you know this broad spectrum of things around that but again the core of it had to be like um you know that that getting better at what you love kind of piece um, you know, and being able to have an experience of, of learning together in some sort of way. So, uh, so that was it. We started the podcast later on. That wasn't actually initially a part of the plan. And then in 2017, we thought actually we were kind of late to the party on podcasts. You know, there were already some really good ones out there in beer. And so, um, we just launched it to, to try to, you know, initially it was like, Hey, me, maybe we can get to 5,000 downloads an episode. And if we, if we get there, we're going to be, Oh, we'll just, uh, wouldn't that be so cool? We'll made it. Um, you know, and, and now, now it's like 35 to 40,000 downloads a week. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a much different equation now, but, you know, again, cool that some people have found it. There are people that like to learn by listening. There are people that are driving along commutes and that this is, that's the perfect form for them. And then there are other people that really like video content and want to see somebody and they get that hits for them. There are other people that want that quick digital fix through email. And then there are those people that also want all of this, you know, to sit down and read a magazine and be able to hold on to something and uh, go reference it, you know, um, and being able to create media with a similar kind of focus, but produce it through all of these channels so we can hit each person in the way that they want to learn, way they want to consume that content. You know, that's the thing. And so, you know, that's, yeah, <laughs> that's what we do. Going, going back to the magazine side, uh, there are a lot of hard costs with putting out a magazine. Um, you know, you've got, you've got to pay, you got to pay people, the content providers, you've got, um, you got to pay people to lay it out. Uh, you got to pay photographers or I don't know how you get your art, but <laughs> there's art. Uh, sure. uh, there's, uh, and then of course there's all the printing and mailing. Uh, and the, the thing that precipitated this, this interview was the magazine is going to go from, um, every other month to uh, quarterly, which is actually a return to what it was normally uh, going to be. Right. And, um, it caught my interest because you mentioned in the email that you sent to me at the time when you announced this, that it wasn't really a matter of, uh, scaling down. Usually when you see somebody go to a, a, a you know, less, less, often format it's because they're getting the magazine because it's not profitable in this case it had to do with all those costs and what's going on and i thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit about how all that works out and why a quarterly makes more sense than than six sure sure you know when you say you hire a bunch of people to do those things i think what you mean is that uh, uh we just do most of those ourselves yes um, yeah, but I they am, have to be I, done right 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 <laughs> like in addition to all the other things that i do I am also our graphic designer, the only graphic designer that we've ever had. I shouldn't say we did have a little bit of graphic design help back in the back in the early, very first year of the of the magazine. 
Um, but I do all the layouts, you know, I do all the graphic design and I, I work with our photographer, freelance photographer, Matt Graves, who's here in Fort Collins and art directs all the photo shoots along with Matt, you know, I help guide him on all of that. So, um, you know, there, there's, we wear a lot of hats in order to make this small media business really, really work. Um, but yeah, no, in the last two years, uh, I was talking to my, my partner, John, yesterday about it. Like our printing and mailing costs have gone up 60% in mm-hmm. two years and they're going to keep going up. Um, you know, that it's such a weird thing and you can go out and, and Google and look at it, but, uh, um, paper as a, a like, it's insane what is going going on in the world of paper. It's it's you know it's the same kind of logistics and shortage story that exists all over the economy right now. Um, but through, but you know a lot of these paper plants moved to like making cardboard boxes so that Amazon could ship stuff to people, and so they sure. moved away. You know, um, there there were strikes at uh, you know some of the you know paper stuff up in the in the Scandinavian countries that uh, negatively impacted. Uh, the entire paper market, but some of the plants just closed or changed focus and they're not coming back. And so there really is this like lack of coded magazine stock, which you'd think would be okay. Cause like, right. People are sending less direct mail and the other things that use this kind of paper, but no, no, there's, there's direct mail has rebounded uh, to now pre pandemic levels. And so there's a demand for catalogs that is just as higher than it was, you know, you know in 2019, at the same time that we're trying to get paper for what we do. I mean, and then of course the United, you know, the U S postal service has been raising rates on magazine publishers, you know, it once was very affordable for magazine publishers to, to mail. Now, um, you know, they're, they're <laughs> that whole thing is a whole nother mess. Anyway, you know, that's just a piece of it. Like, you know, there, everyone in the economy is seeing this brewers are seeing this, the cost of their ingredients, the cost of shipping, you know, what a what LTL, you know, what a pallet costs, like all of these things are just skyrocketing. Um, you know, and so it's the same situation with us, but just, you know, rather than raising prices now or getting weird about it, we're like, you know, it is actually just more efficient to put more pages in a magazine fewer times, you know, like two fewer times a year. Mm-hmm. It's just more it, 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 like, it's a inc- very small incremental cost, you know, in, in additional postage to, to do that. You know, the paper cost is still there, you know, but, um, anyway, you know, just, it just made more sense to do that. And, you know, at the, at the same time, um, you know, we, we give some things up when we do that because, you know, we have advertisers that had signed on for six time a year, con- you know, ad contracts. Well, you know, if you're publishing four times a year, then, we're giving up ad revenue in order to do that. And so, I mean, it wasn't an easy decision. You're definitely having to weigh, you know, all of the, the costs on that. Uh, and then the other piece of it too, is looking at like the time that we spend, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of things with a small team, certainly, you know, want to find the most efficient way to use our time to create the most value for the people that are supporting us. Um, you know, and some of that is, you know, I, I think that, that ultimately, you know, the, this is the, the right decision to, to keep things sane for all of us um, and, you know, produce content in that channel at the right kind of frequency that people want to consume it there while also continuing to ramp up the way that we, you know, produce content, you know, across all of the other channels. Um, you know, and having said that, like, we've been really over the last couple of years focusing on how we provide more premium content in a digital sphere for uh, whether that's, you know, through our all access emails, whether that's, you know, we're launching a new all access recipe program where um, brewers, you know, all access subscribers get exclusive access every other week to new pro recipe from an inspirational brewer and with some background, you know, these are, again, we're trying to 
find the the things that people really want from us mm-hmm. and you know create the value there for them so that uh they're getting there and the, the magazine is still a core part of that i, I my goal is to keep working on magazines until someone makes me retire at some point in the future. I, I'm probably at least 15 years away from that. So hopefully I can, I can just stretch this out to make it work, but no, um, it's just actually a sustainable thing. People love magazine. They're willing to, to pay for it. And and then the, the cool piece of it is that we've been able to build these hybrid subscriptions that incorporate access to digital products, um, things like those video classes, uh, you know, other benefits as well. At, you know, again, exclusive email newsletters, in addition to the magazine, uh, the magazine content or the print magazine that, that we mail to people. So by combining those things, uh, you know, it, it's actually a pretty cool hybrid way to to go about media these days. And uh, yeah, yeah, cool. All right, let's talk a little bit. We I don't want to bend your ear too long, so we're gonna have to. Uh, close this up in the next five minutes, sure. so. but um, I'm curious about the future. So one thing as a writer that, uh, you know, I'm always keeping my eye on is how much interest is there in, you know, more deeply reported content versus uh, like what we're doing here takes neither of us anywhere near the amount of time it would take to write or, or publish a, a story, right. Or report it out for you to get the art and, you know, lay it out and edit it and all that stuff. That it, it's an involved process we can just bang out a, a podcast in an hour. It's no problem. Um, social media is even worse. You know, you can bang out a tweet or, or a small Twitter thread. And this stuff has, you know, materially affected the way uh, beer is covered and what kind of coverage we see. So I'm curious how you see that affecting you uh, and how, you know, how you compete with all these, you know, one great thing is you have many, many avenues to to talk to people, one bad thing is there are so many avenues out there. It's kind of, you know, it's a big cloud of information. So how, what's it like being a, you know, a, a media publisher in, in 2022? And how do you, how do you reconcile all these cross currents? You know, I look at it, it's almost uh, the same challenge that say TV news faces. It's much less expensive to produce a news analysis show with four talking heads all, you know, calling in from studios, you know, and build an hour of content that is news-ish that way. Way cheaper to do that than to send reporters out into the world um, with travel expenses, you know, photographer, reporter, videographer, et cetera, on location to actually go out and report news. That's really expensive compared to, and this is why we have so many talking heads, um, you know, but I, and are we any smarter for all of the talking heads we have, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't know that we are. Um, I'll, I'll jump off of that soap, soapbox, but, you know, I think for us, part of it is that we try to keep that analysis a small part of what we do. And we try to keep the pragmatic focus on uh, content that helps you get better at brewing, you know, as the primary focus on that, you know, and so that how to piece and, working with writers like you or Randy Mosher, or, you know, Josh Weikert, uh, um, you know, Kate Bernard, like being able to dive in and, un, you know, unpack the way people are doing things. That's value that we add, right. By, by keeping the focus there. And so, you know, we even have writers that will cross, you know, they also write for other outlets and they write a different style of story, you know, um, it may be more factual news based. It may be more analysis based. Um, they they may it may be just pure opinion. Um, but when they write for us, 
It's going to be a pragmatic story um, that we very much, you know, always like it always has to have that that element of helping people understand how certain people are brewing in a way that they can apply that to their practice. Or if it's something through, say, our, our uh, B2B magazine, The Brewing Industry Guide, um, you know, someone like Kate might write a story for for good beer hunting that outlines what a problem is and how significant that problem is. And when she writes the story for us, it's these are examples of breweries and how they are solving for this problem. And so that as you are operating your brewery, you can apply that to the way that you operate. And so we want to stay solutions based like that, Um, you know, and I think by staying there, but also, again, giving writers the space and the time and, you know, paying them a reasonable rate in order to allow them to put the time into that. Um, you know, by doing it and by approaching it that way, you know, it creates the value that, uh, the readers see in it. And I think that that's the right approach for us to continue to take, you know, again, like the barrier of entry for opinion or, you know, that kind that just pure analysis in this media world, the barrier of entry is very low on that. And the barrier of entry for, you know, what we do, which is, um, going putting stories through multiple levels of editing fact checking uh diving deep and you know digging in and building the kind of trust with a certain tier of you know brewer who is now willing to talk and share with us because they know and respect the quality of the work that we do and they know that we're going to represent it well and we're going to get the story right you know that piece that that's value you know that's a value that we add and bring to this um you know and so in that sense again we're just going to stay focused on that because I think that's where, you know, that's what subscribers want and expect from us. Well, I think we can leave it there. I, I admire uh, what the magazine is doing. And I know that um, uh, it is it is the kind of value, you're, you're creating the kind of value that I think is sustainable. Um, you're right that it is easy to do a hot take and it drives a lot of traffic, uh, but it is a short-sighted way to think about, you know, uh, covering any topic because eventually, uh, what people are interested in is the deeper stuff. And they come back to your website, they come back to your magazine, they come back to the podcast and listen to those. I assume you're getting long tails on all of these uh, with people continuing to visit it because you've cached all this really important information, the, the videos as well. Uh, so I, I think it's, I think uh, one of the last questions I was going to ask is how do you build uh, you know, a media company in, in 2022 that's successful? And I think you answered it in that last question. It's provide, provide value for the reader. Uh, the listener, the, the watcher. <laughs> uh, and, and also knowing that it's not just about traffic. Like if it were just about traffic, oh man, we could, we could accomplish that in a whole bunch of ways, but what you can get for a web ad for somebody to go to a place and read it, if they're even going to do that. Like, I mean, we're in a media world where, you know, Facebook and Twitter, you know, et cetera, are taking a huge chunk of the advertising budget that yeah. otherwise used to support, you know, writers. It drives me absolutely nuts, um, you know, to, to watch writers create free content on social media via Twitter, you know, via Facebook. I'm like, why are you writing for them so that they can sell ads against this work that you're now doing for them for free? Like I have actually gone through and just wiped out my, you know, my, my social media presence. Like I'm not creating content for Mark Zuckerberg to sell advertising again against like it doesn't serve i mean it just doesn't serve anybody for me other than you know these platforms to do that and so anyway i think that's you know that's the other important piece of this like i would love to see a social media platform that actually you know pushes money back to those uh, 
<laughs> these content creators that are creating all this value on their platforms. It's just a pipe dream I doubt it'll ever happen. In the meantime, we've always focused on building those direct relationships with uh, with our readers and subscribers. You know, we accept that the audience is going to be smaller because of that, right. but a smaller audience that cares more and that cares deeply and that is still willing to you know support us as we do this at the level that we need in order to make sure that we do it and um, to make sure that again we're doing right by all of our contributors that we're doing right by all of our employees you know we also you know committed ourselves to running a you know fundamentally ethical and moral business you know we provide great health care pay 100 percent of our employee health care we have a nice 401k match for all of our folks like we've got a you know maternity paternity leave we're trying to build a good business and be a good like corporate citizen in addition to you know hitting you know uh, producing what we need to produce to you know so that our, our subscribers and supporters get what they want out of it you know all none all of these things cost money in some way or another you know and so figuring out how to balance all of those things but also um you know and do it in a sustainable way it's not an easy challenge but you know it's like why why start a business if you're not interested in doing that right. we didn't get into this to, we didn't get into this to be like you know robber barons that somehow everybody hates you know like life is short if you're not in it to be the best that you can be and treat everyone well and build deep relationships that are meaningful um then like i mean you know why do it <laughs> well i don't know a better way to stop than that i think that's exactly right and i i hope um uh i hope i live up to that in my own writing my own work too and it's great to it's great to be a part of the magazine it's um uh, fun for me to do, a, uh, you know, get my reporting chops out. I'm right, right now, look for this in the future. I'm working on American Amber Ale. That's a lot of fun thinking about American Amber Ale. It allows me to uh, grow and think about beer uh, when I get to work on a piece like this. So that's a, it's, it's a, it's a great magazine and I enjoy working on it. And um, I really admire what you're doing with the mag, especially I like what all, I like all the stuff you do, but I'm a, I'm a writer. So the printed word is the thing I care about the most. And I really appreciate what you've done there. You know, we're making it work and, you know, it's thanks to, you know, folks like you, I mean, I've really enjoyed, like we've built committed relationships, you know, as you know, we contract with writers for an entire year. We build this kind of base so that you can, you know, what's happening and uh, you know, but again, building those firm relationships um, and being able to then, you know, maintain those over time, um, but also, you know, keep pushing each other and try to find new ways to, to keep things fresh and uh, keep it interesting and always, you know, keep asking ourselves, how can we do this a little bit better? You know, it's, it's the cool thing to get to work with so many interesting and creative people. And of course, I count you among those, Jeff. I mean, it's, uh, it's been a true pleasure, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to, to be able to do this with, uh, with you and, and with all of our other writers. Well, thank you. Thanks, thanks for going along with this crazy little experiment that we've got going. <laughs> well, it's it's a lot of fun for me. Um, it, it, it's uh, it's fun to work on a project that uh, I get to go deep and, and write something good. And, you know, as a as I write books and I get edited for that, and that's great. But on my blog, I don't get edited. And a lot of people will always point out when I have typos or errors of judgment or stuff. So it's great. It's actually great to have Joe edit me and uh, know that when, when it appears in the pages of the magazine, it's it's going to be a good piece. So I appreciate that. Four four sets of eyes will have all looked at that from uh, Trish, Joe, uh, LaVon, our proofreader, and me. Yeah. Um, everything goes through, you know, this kind of long process. And, you know, it's hard to always see that in the value. But uh, I think that well, you the, can, if you want, if, if the listener wants to see the value, go go to my blog, 
read what I wrote there and then go and <laughs> look at what, look what, look, look, see what, how it translates in a magazine. You'll see the value of editing. So we all put the work in and uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think people see it in the finished product. And, it, and, and again, um, it's fun that we can inspire people, help broaden people's knowledge about all of these things in beer and, uh, you know, and keep both the, the tradition and the spirit of, you know, creative development alive. It's something that's always been there throughout the history of beer. Uh, something we want to keep going, but, you know, while also keeping it grounded and understanding where, where we've come from. Um, it's just a fundamental part of that, Jeff. Awesome. Thank you so much. Absolutely. He is Jamie Bogner and uh, the enterprise is craft beer and brewing. Uh, it's got a magazine. If you go to the website, you can find the other uh, elements of that there as well. Thank you so much, Jamie. I really appreciate it. Great talking with you, Jeff. And we're back. Thank you, Jamie, for uh, your time. We actually uh, continued to talk for about 20 minutes after. <laughs> it's one of those things like I should have had the the recorder on because that was good stuff but <laughs> i think we i think we captured all, all the really important stuff which i think from my perspective the most important thing that i didn't realize was that he had so much experience in publishing before uh, he and his partner launched this and right. unlike legacy uh organizations they did not start with the magazine and then add a bunch of random stuff to try to shore up uh the finances, they conceived of it as a media company from the start. And, and it's really clear how that's worked out for them. Yeah, that so that reminds me of my experience writing a textbook for Pearson uh, Publishing, which is now, they can they bought a whole bunch of other publishers. So they're the, by far the biggest academic publisher around. And uh, they already have this platform that Math and Econ and Think Sciences uses, which is an online like problem set and homework. And so I thought, well, this is great, because what uh, they actually contacted me asked me to write a textbook and I said, well, I'm not really interested in writing a regular old textbook because the, but I think there's an opportunity here to create something truly interactive that exists on the web. It's basically a website instead of a textbook. You can click around, you can manipulate stuff, you can do all these great things. And they just like, oh, wow, that's awesome. Let's write a contract and have you do that. So, <laughs> so I started writing this and they're like, okay, insert cool thing here and let's have a link here. And I was writing it. And uh, I submitted the first few chapters like, okay, so do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized very quickly that they had no idea. Uh, they were looking for other people, one, to figure out these kids and what they want. Uh, and two, they had no idea how to do this stuff. Right. And so they kept connecting me with different vendors. Oh, this vendor has a widget that does this. Does this work? You want to talk to this person? Right. And pretty soon the whole project just collapsed because I was like, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not figuring out all of the, the bells and whistles. I'm here to write and I'll give the content. But right. uh, but that was exactly my experience. This old publisher, all they ever did was publish books on paper and send them out and charge $1,000 to poor captive customers and college students. And, uh, and they're like, oh, wow, the new world is on the computer. Okay, we'll make a PDF of it. And, then, and that was what I was trying to get around. But they just didn't. They didn't have the yep. wherewithal to sort of go. Yeah, it's the difference between trying to, to have one skill set uh, and doing one thing and then trying to fill it in with skills you don't have versus understanding all of that and yeah. doing it holistically from the start. Yeah. So Anyway, yeah. needless to say, that, that textbook never happened, but they let me out of my contract and I just wrote the textbook anyway. And now it is uh, a free open access textbook on the web. So look for it, Intermediate Microeconomics by Patrick M. Emerson. Yeah, I own it. Somewhere on my hard drive, it is. No, no, no one owns it. Oh, well, that's but true. you possess it. I possess it. Yes. It exists somewhere on my hard drive somewhere. <laughs> uh, 
uh, supposedly a brand new sort of like my books sit on your on your uh, bookstand unread, just like yours sits mm-hmm. in my uh, hard drive unread. Well, that's a, that's a stretch to say they're unread because proximity allows the information contained within at night to seep into my brain. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I see. Uh, there is supposed to be a brand new, like, updated version of my textbook out. They were they were doing all kinds of editing plus graphics and other stuff. Ooh. So it's we'll supposed, to, supposed to be snazzier, but it was supposed to be out by September, yeah, it's and it's true. still not out. So it's, you want it out by the yeah by the, by the time beginning of the yeah. yeah. Anyway, look for it soon. All right. Okay, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate us five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to Jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter. Maybe. As long as it exists. <laughs> and yeah. Instagram at beervonapod. Same handle for both. Uh, Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog and he tweets at beervana. And I tweet for the time being at Beeronomics. Uh, and we have nothing to cheers because we didn't drink anything because we've been lax. It's all right. We'll... Uh... We'll get we'll, to the drinking soon. We'll make up for it in the next podcast. <laughs> it's just the only sound of people drinking beer. It's going to be a fabulous podcast. That's true. Yeah. We're looking forward to that. But this was awesome too. So uh, listen to it and we'll, or you did just listen to it. So awesome. <laughs> All right. Bye, Jeff. Bye, Patrick. Bye, everyone. <laughs>